Hello everyone, my name is Sherry Rice and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today we are talking about the high cost of chronic disease. My guests today are Kara Hawkrider. She is a registered dietitian, and Trevor Rice, Chief Operating Officer of Access to Healthcare. Welcome, Trevor and Kara. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. We're going to talk today about the high cost of chronic disease, but in order to talk about that, we need to talk a little bit about what is chronic disease, and we're going to talk about social determinants because that's something that um, is talked about a great deal, and not everybody knows what that is. I've got some stats here. The total cost of direct health care treatment for chronic disease in the United States in 2016 was $1.1 trillion. The most common chronic health conditions are high cholesterol, hypertension, osteoarthritis, I was a little surprised by that one, and type 2 diabetes. Uh, They also talked about how obesity is the greatest risk factor for chronic disease. But let's talk about the cost of this, the cost to individuals, to families, to insurance companies, uh, to employers. Who'd like to start, and what would you like to talk about as to the high cost? Trevor? Sure. Um, yeah, and I, and I don't know that the stat that you, you mentioned, I think $1.1 trillion, I think is what you said. Um, I'd be curious if that actually included uh, costs such as lost, uh, lost economic productivity, you know, because you're, you're talking about not only um, the direct cost of treating a chronic disease, whether that's going to see a primary care physician, whether that's medications, uh, complications and having to go into the hospital, surgeries and that kind of stuff, but also, you know, someone who has diabetes um, is if you know they're missing a few weeks of work, that's that's also a cost to society in general as well. So I think you have to look at that stuff that stuff too. Um, and then of course, you know I think you know folks who have a chronic disease, uh, you know this would be obvious to them, but there is uh, the cost to the individual themselves as well. You know especially in in today's uh, healthcare system where you're looking at high deductible health plans and what it takes actually financially to be able to manage a chronic disease, um, but also to be able to obtain uh, things to help manage that that maybe some people don't really look at the cost of food of how housing, you know, social determinants that we were talking about. So it's, it's pretty extensive what this cost is, and I think sometimes that gets missed. Uh, Kara, I was surprised that type 2 diabetes was number four. I was surprised that osteoarthritis was number three. I assume that osteoarthritis was something that happens as you age. Uh, as a dietitian, have you dealt with osteoarthritis, and what are some of your recommendations with that disease factor? I have dealt with it a little bit, um, not extensively like I have with diabetes, um, just because there are so many other ways that you can also treat osteoarthritis other than just nutrition. And of course, same goes for diabetes, but um, we don't see the direct link as much with osteoarthritis. Um, But as far as that's concerned, it's really um, looking at foods that are anti-inflammatory and trying to increase those in the diet. um, And what would that be? Um, So that's a lot of like fruits, vegetables, uh, Those are anti-inflammatory. Yeah, the omega-3 fatty acids that are often kind of touted nowadays. um, Those occur naturally in uh, lots of fatty fish and things like that. Um, So those are really beneficial as well to help uh, the joints continue to function. And what are the foods that should be avoided that would do the inflammation? So these, the recommendations are really similar to most um, types of chronic conditions that we're talking about. So, of course, um, 
added sugars are a big one, um, high fat foods, especially saturated fats, um, any type of like overly processed foods, all of those really contribute to um, increased inflammation within the body. So really when we talk about high cholesterol, hypertension, osteoarthritis, and type 2 diabetes, which are the top four, uh, the dietary recommendations may waver a bit, but they're pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that we should be staying away from uh, if we want to avoid all of those disease processes. Yep, and we know this too. Um, it's just that it's not necessarily as um, appealing necessarily or as good of a uh, media headline as right. some of those trendier diets. Um, so, but those same basic principles still hold true with all of them because all of these conditions are also interrelated too. So having type 2 diabetes increases your risk for heart disease. It also increases your risk for osteoarthritis um, because when your blood glucose um, elevations increase, that puts more strain on the joints and it's, they lose their flexibility too. So, so Trevor, when we're, when we're talking about the high cost, uh, we're talking about a high cost to individuals, families, insurance companies, and employers. Um, can you give us a little sense of how that affects each of those? Uh, how the high cost of chronic disease affects each of those uh, categories, employers, yeah, individuals? Yeah, individuals, families, employers. Sure. Um, and and kind of how I, I mentioned briefly. So start with the individual. Um, you know, if you have a chronic disease such as type 2 diabetes, osteoarthritis, whatever that might be, um, there are several factors that could go into play for that for you. Uh, one, again, we talked about with employers, and this, this does relate to employers, um, is the idea if you miss uh, time off of work because you have diabetes, you have complications, you know, whatever that disease might be, um, is you potentially could be facing lost wages because it's, it's not ubiquitous, you know, through our society nowadays where you are given sick time. So if you miss time off, uh, you lose potential wages, potentially maybe even lose your job if you, if you miss too much time, right? Um, but then again, the cost of actually caring for that disease, you're looking at going to see a primary care physician, maybe going to see some specialists. Again, if you have diabetes, maybe an endocrinologist, the cost of medications. Uh, you know, you look nowadays at insulin, and, and I, I don't know the exact price, but uh, the cost of insulin has skyrocketed over the past decade, where now you're looking at, I think, $500 a month, $600 a month for some individuals. You know, that's an that's a extremely significant cost cost for someone, especially when you look at the fact that you still have to be able to pay rent. Um, you have to look at food. If you want to treat diabetes, you have to look at root causes, such as what diet is. And if you don't have enough money, um, that's a significant barrier for somebody. If you look at employers, you know, I think you can really distill it down um, fairly simply, the concept, the idea, which is, again, if you have a lot of diabetics, you know, uh, as employees, um, you know, then you're looking at potential, again, lost productivity in terms of both uh, uh, sick days, but also if someone's just not feeling good and they still show up to work, which happens an awful lot, right? Um, and then you look at insurance companies. Uh, I think that this is one of the major factors uh, driving forces of the cost of care in our society in general is chronic disease. And an awful lot of that burden is going to fall upon insurance companies, whether that's, um, you know, the government as Medicare, uh, whether that's private insurance companies, or even looking at Medicaid, is they spend um, an immense amount of dollars, one, again, $1.1 trillion, I think is what you said, on covering the cost of these diseases, which, again, I would go back to say is manageable and preventable in a lot of ways. Well, Carol, let's talk for a second about that optimum uh, nutrition diet that we would go on or nutritional uh, way of eating, that's many times not low cost. Fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, the 
inner aisles of a grocery store are cheaper than the outer aisles of a grocery store. And what do we ta say to clients that are on a fixed income or low income, and we tell them to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables? Yeah, so oftentimes people assume that people aren't eating these fruits and vegetables and other things that we're recommending um, simply because they don't know that they should be. But again, these recommendations are pretty widespread, and we know that fruits and vegetables and fresh seafood and things like that are really good for us, um, but it's not always easy to obtain them um, for a number of different reasons, too. So um, maybe they're not even available where you live, um, depending on where you live. If you live in a food desert where the only thing around you is a corner store that doesn't sell any type of fresh fruits or vegetables, you don't even have access to buy them. Um, and if you do have access to buy them, maybe you don't have the funds to be able to afford them, or um, maybe the quality is not even good too, or um, you don't have access to safe, affordable options. So before you can really make these recommendations too, you really have to take a bigger picture look at the individual and all of these different social determinants of health that we're looking at. So where do they live? Um, what do they do? What's their income like? Uh, what types of um, appliances do they have at their home to actually be able to prepare the foods when they get home? Um, so before you can really give any type of recommendations, you have to know all of those moving pieces too so that you can tailor your recommendations um, to that individual. Well, the cooking classes that you do at Access to Healthcare, uh, you have a group of people, and I know you, you did one this week for about 12 people, and they all probably come from different socioeconomic levels. So how do you deal with that in a class when somebody may be on a $1,000 a month fixed income and can't afford to go and get the fresh fruits and vegetables? Yeah, so we like to make this really approachable for everybody. So um, we don't of course, um, ask people their income or point out anybody in particular. But what we do is we provide the general recommendations and then we say, here are some ideas. And we give a variety of different ideas and options. So um, we talk about canned fruits and vegetables and how to choose ones that are more nutritious because people just assume that canned fruits and vegetables lack nutrition, but that's not the case. Same thing goes for frozen too. So we go through how to choose those as well um, so that whether you're only limited to those of, like in terms of availability or financially too, you can still find things that work for you. But then we also, of course, go into fresh and um, maybe get a little bit more creative with things too. So... Fabulous. Um, and I know your classes have been very well received, haven't they? People are loving them, which is great because we enjoy doing them too. So, And if someone listening wanted to take one of your cooking classes or um, get more information on nutrition, what number would they call? They would call our health education department, which is area code 775-284-1893. Okay. Let's talk about the management of chronic disease, medication adherence, behavioral therapy, uh, surveillance. And the surveillance that I'm talking about is going to your primary doc or your specialist so that somebody is involved in your treatment. 
medication adherence. There's been quite a few articles on the fact that many people don't take their medication as prescribed. Trevor, do you have a sense of why that happens? Sure. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I can speak to the comprehensive reasons as to why they don't do it, but some things that we've seen um, during the course of our history in doing care coordination, care management, and these health education programs, um, you know, one very simple one is cost is, you know, when you get down to folks who, um, you know, are making maybe $12,000, $18,000 a year, um, again, going to, to afford your insulin, that's, that's, a, that's a big concern for somebody, especially if they don't have a, um, a quality health insurance product that may be covering that or providing low, low co-pays. Um, but it's not just insulin. I mean, any medication you're taking, whether it's a statin for your cholesterol, you know, if you're taking medications for high blood pressure, cost is a significant issue for folks nowadays. Um, so that's, that's one major one. Um, and then you also look at, do people actually know how to take their medication? And, um, you know, part of that's about uh, just providing information, but I think providing it in a format um, in a time frame that truly helps people understand exactly what to do. And I say this because, you know, for instance, I'm college educated, but the healthcare system is very opaque. It's hard to understand. And, um, you know, this is not an issue for primary care physicians. But when you only get, say, 10 to 15 to 20 minutes with a primary care physician, there's only so much support they can provide you on exactly what to take, how to take it. Or, for instance, you know, if you take your diabetes medication and all of a sudden your symptoms start to clear up, but you don't change your diet, that can affect uh, symptoms down the road. And so maybe you adjust your medications on your own. Right, and you don't know quite how to deal with that. Um, that can also be an effect upon it. Um, maybe motivation, you know, actually psychologically um, having that that kernel of motivation of saying, you know, I know I want to change, I know I need to change, but um, you know, what am I really looking for to be able to push me forward on that piece, and, and knowing how to actually how to do that process. Yeah, we're going to talk about what why people change and what motivates them to change. You know, it's interesting about the medication. I take Synthroid every day because I've had a thyroidectomy. And some days I just, it's like, I just, for some reason, it's like day after day. And you just go, well, maybe I don't have to take it today. Because it's it's about sort of a, do I have to take this every single day? And it's an interesting thing that happens when you have to take something on a daily basis. Yeah, just to add to that, too, Trevor mentioned about people sometimes don't know how to take them, too, but they really just don't even understand the why of it, mm. too. So why why am I prescribed this? How is it going to help me? Because the more that somebody knows about that, too, the more motivated they're actually going to be to take it every day, like you said. Well, that brings up another, another topic on change. I read an article that... Um, Giving somebody, just giving them information, for instance, and I'm making this up, you're in a doctor's office and they're putting you on a medication, so they hand you a pamphlet. And that just handing someone information doesn't work very well. That reading of a pamphlet or look something up online, that there needs to be that interaction with somebody and that discussion. Um, have you noticed that, Trevor, that people need more than just a pamphlet handed to them? Sure. You know, and again, this would, this would come from uh, my experience and our experience in, in providing uh, chronic disease self-management education classes. And those classes really are built around the idea of trying to get to the crux of, um, you know, what really helps people to create change in their lives in some shape or form. And in this regard, it's talk about health. Um, and I think information is extremely important. Um, you know, accurate information, but, you know, the classes we talk about, that we teach, excuse me, um, talk about the idea that the information is secondary to a few things. Um, and one is, is helping people to figure out what information is accurate, uh, what's up to date, um, how it relates to them, how it relates to their lives, um, and then getting really down to the details and the nuances of, um, you know, this person's life, their lifestyle, 
their family, their relationships, their psychological uh, state, their motivation, and how that all plays into them. Again, making these changes, taking the medications, adhering to the medications, you know, so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot more than just providing, uh, um, you know, that information. You have to really um, provide support for the person on a very ongoing, in some, some ways, intensive level. What are the key components to change? Either one of you. What are, what are the key components to get somebody to change? And Kara, if you want to add to this, um, I think a few things. One, um, information is, is powerful, mm -hmm. very much is. Um, I think uh, motivation, um, and, I, and I think a lot of people really understand this and realize this at a, at a basic level, that um, you know, what, are, what are you motivated to change for? And I think that as a society, oftentimes, we look at it that um, you know, health experts, uh, us included, you know, may know what's best for you and why you should be changing something, why you would want to change something. But I think we also realize, and maybe not to a greater extent, that that motivation really has to come from the person. They have to have a very powerful emotional reason as to why, why they want to change their diet because of diabetes. You know, and oftentimes, my experience, that revolves around relationship, revolves around people, revolves around emotions of what's going to bring me joy, right? You gotta dive into that with the person, I believe, to make those changes. A couple more things um, is um, the ability to figure out how you'd actually go about making a change. Well, and for, let me take a step back. Actually, what you want to change, what are your goals? You know, you look at uh, goals, for instance. Um, I think that's a very powerful thing that we oftentimes forget about uh, with behavior change is uh, it seems like as a society, um, or at least the folks that we that we we work with, is they have these big ideas that, I, you know, I want to change my uh, diet, for instance, because I, I want to feel better. I want to take care of my diabetes. I want to be around for my family for longer. But they have these really big, broad goals as in, you know, right now I don't eat very healthy. I eat fast food four days a week. Um, you know, I eat a lot of red meat. And so tomorrow I'm going to eat no fast food. I'm going to eat absolutely no red meat. Um, but I think, you know, uh, um, research has proven that that doesn't work. And what's more beneficial is to be able to help people make small changes, small incremental changes along the way, small steps that can build up over time and give people confidence that I can do this, I can make these changes. So, so goal setting is, is one important piece. I think also uh, what we call decision making. Um, along the way to achieving my goals um, is two things um, are going to come up. One is uh, problems. Uh, challenges are going to get in the way of us achieving our goals. Lots of problems, whether it's money, motivation, whether it's time, stress, uh, relationships. And uh, we, it, to be successful in behavior change, you need to uh, be given the tools and have the experience to be able to navigate those problems. And I think uh, the correlate to that would be decision making. Is if I'm faced with a problem, what do I do? How do I decide what to do, right? And again, coming back to our experience, the classes that we that we teach, that we didn't develop, they were developed by Stanford University. Um, it gives people those very basic life skills, um, how to set a goal for themselves, um, how to problem solve, make decisions, um, and again, find that internal uh, uh, kernel of motivation as to why I'm even doing this. It's interesting, if somebody breaks their arm, they're motivated to go get it fixed. Chronic disease has a whole set of different components, which has become very challenging, I think, Kara, uh, in how we deal with chronic disease. We're used to going and getting something fixed. Absolutely, because with your example, too, where somebody maybe breaks their arm and is motivated to get it fixed, it's because it's impacting their life their life at that moment and it will continue to impact their life until they get that fixed um, but with chronic conditions a lot of times we don't notice any type of symptoms for very long until eventually they progress and then 
they impact, they definitely do start to impact our lives at that point, but oftentimes it's too late then and we need to take more of a proactive approach. But it's really difficult to find that motivation when you're not seeing any negative impacts on your health or quality of life at that moment. So like Trevor mentioned, finding that internal motivation is really important to actually getting people to start making those steps towards change. And how do you do that, Kara? How do you find that internal motivation? So the first thing is really seeing where they're at in terms of uh, what we call a readiness assessment. So basically, um, through our interactions, we can kind of gauge where they're at as far as actually wanting to make the change, seeing the need to make the change, and also their motivation to make the change. And then from there, we can kind of tailor the conversation further. So if they actually see a need for the change, then we will start to um, maybe take some looks at take a look at um, where to begin. So as Trevor mentioned, finding um, how it's going to impact their life. So maybe the person um, is older and has younger grandkids that they're um, taking care of, and they just don't have the energy to keep up with them anymore. So finding that thing that's going to keep driving them forward, um, even when they may be hit an obstacle or things get tough. Well, it seems that if somebody walks into one of your classes or your cooking class or one of your educational classes, they're partway there. They're motivated yeah. enough to walk into the class. Yeah, absolutely. The first step is just getting there. Just like people say right. with working out and going to the gym, the first step right. is actually going. Yeah. So um, we've accomplished that when we get them in the door. So then it's kind of holding on to that and then digging a little bit deeper, too, so that we can keep them coming back. Well, and changing isn't new to our society. I mean, we're we're talking about it from a chronic disease standpoint, but I don't imagine there's um, too many people on the planet that don't want to change something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly when we look at smoking or uh, drinking or drugs or something, all of this, do you think, Trevor, is the same sort of formula for getting people to change the motivation, the emotional component, the decision making on whatever you're looking to change, not just chronic disease. Sure, and and I will uh, uh, say that I am uh, not an expert in the field of change, especially when it comes to things such as you know substance abuse, um, you know that kind of stuff. But I, I would I would say that you know um, that the dynamic is is probably the same across all of them, and is equally challenging um, across all of them. Um, you know, obviously, people who have uh, addictions to various substances, um, that's a challenge in and of itself. But even trying to change something as ingrained as you know what you've been eating for the past thirty five years, um, you know, on things like uh, sugar consumption, that's that's an extreme challenge. And, and what I was going to add uh, in addition to what Kara talked about too is is I don't want to also forget um, you know, the fact that when you look at things, uh, the skills for people to be able to set goals and then you look at someone and you're able to walk them through the path to have motivation, don't forget though that the structure they find themselves in um, especially folks who live in poverty can be an extreme barrier to making that change. Even if you know what you want to do and you have the motivation to do it and you have the, the mental skill sets to do it um, is if you don't have uh, the financial means to be able to uh, get resources to what you're looking for, you know, if a car, um, you know, uh, your housing uh, isn't adequate, those are major barriers. Well, that leads me to the conversation of what exactly is a social determinant of health, because I think you're starting to move into that by talking about poverty and car, et cetera. But what exactly is a social determinant of health? Uh, so my understanding, my experience about social determinants of health are um, what leads us to be either healthy or unhealthy 
um, from the perspective of our environment. Um, and when I say environment, you're, you're looking at things such as, again, uh, what food people are eating. Uh, you're looking at uh, things such as uh, where do they live? You know, for example, um, uh, there was a study done, I think it was back in Maryland, that showed uh, kids who had asthma, um, that what, what affected their, uh, their chance of going to the ER uh, greater than access to a physician or even access to, say, medications, uh, inhalers, uh, was where they lived. If they lived in houses that had uh, black mold in the walls or that were dusty, uh, that, that factor, that social determinant, their housing affected their health much more than their medication did or their providers. So housing. Transportation. Again, in, in communities uh, somewhat such as ours, if you are asked to go see a physician or go get a medication or you need to go get food, as Carrie mentioned, you live in a food desert, um, access to adequate transportation, uh, um, community transportation, not having a car, that's a social determinant. Uh, nowadays, I would argue that uh, having a cell phone is a social determinant, right? Be able to manage your life through communication in some shape or form. Um, having access to heating uh, in the wintertime and cooling in the summertime. Those are, those are different... Um, 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 components of it. Well, it brings up an interesting conversation, and uh, each of you might have a comment on this, is whose job is it to to look at that? You know, whose job is it in our society to get somebody that cell phone, to get them that transportation, to get them that housing? It's that thing, are we our brother's keeper? It's becoming more and more uh, in this century that we're looking at social determinants where 50 years ago uh, we weren't. And now, whose job is it? Of course, it's access to health care's job. We take care of quite a bit of that. But do you see what I'm saying? It's. Mm -hmm. uh, I think yeah. that's some real discussions going on today as to who's, who's responsible for that. And, and I would see two things in there. Who's responsible to me has two, com uh, two components to it. Uh, one is whose job is it to actually uh, address social determinants of health, provide food, provide housing, provide transportation services. Uh, but probably, and maybe the bigger one, is whose job is it to pay for it? Right, because when it comes down to it, is if there's a lack of resources, um, someone has to fund this. And I think traditionally it's been um, nonprofits such as us. Um, it's been done through government grants, you know, that fund these different services. But now you look at it and say, okay, we know social determinants uh, makes up about 35% of our health, uh, whether we get sick or we stay healthy. And in that fashion. Uh, should it be? Does it need to be integrated into our healthcare system? And now you talk about: Do state agencies for Medicaid have a part to play? Does Medicare have a part to play? Do private insurance companies have a part to play? Um, what the answer is, I couldn't tell you, but that's definitely a big question out there. Kara, you have any comment on that? I think just in general, when it comes to health, it's really a shared responsibility between the individual and um, you know the government and the environment and everything that's everything else that's playing into that role and oftentimes we put a little too much onus on the individual when like we said if they leave the physician's office or whatever and they don't have the environment to actually support the changes that were discussed with the physician you're setting themselves you're setting them up for failure so just in our country alone like we don't really spend that much money on social services especially when you start to look at some of our peer countries that are also um, developed similar, similarly to us, um, most of them spend about a two-to-one ratio on social services compared to healthcare, whereas ours is a one-to-one -one ratio. So, um, and that is a mutual relationship too, because the more you spend on social services, the more you're also helping to lower healthcare costs as well, because you're actually feeding into prevention as opposed to just treatment. 
Yeah, it's a uh, interesting emotional, political, social conversation on whose job is it to, as Trevor says, to do the services, but then whose job is it to pay for the services? Uh, and we certainly know from a, a standpoint of what we do for a living that sometimes you're very willing and able to do the services, but you don't have the financial means to do it. Let's talk about um, the categories of engagement, and this is something that I read in an article. There's disengaged, and then there's becoming aware but struggling. So somebody's aware they need to do something, but they're struggling with how to do it. And then category three and four, uh, category three is taking action, and category four is long-term action. Uh, which is always interesting, long-term action. And certainly, uh, most anyone in the United States and probably around the world uh, has gone on a diet, so to speak, and lost weight and then just to gain it back. So it was an action. They were motivated, but it wasn't a long-term action. Kara, what about, what about that? How do you get somebody who is engaged, they're, they're becoming aware, but they're struggling with it. And how do you get to long-term action? So I think long-term action really comes from those shorter-term actions and building upon those. So a lot of times I see patients and clients want to go from zero to 60 overnight, and that's just never going to happen. And if it does happen, it's not going to actually stick too. So when we're looking at making changes, we need to look at making those smaller changes first and just tackling one small thing at a time and building upon that to actually, over time, achieve that long-term goal. So people that want an instant fix tend to get disappointed. Absolutely, and then they get discouraged, and then they just give up entirely and go back to whatever their old habits were that they were actually trying to change to begin with. Sure, then they move back to disengaged. Mm -hmm. Trevor, any comment on that? Yeah, that uh, I, this is a challenge we've been facing for you know millennia. I think as human beings, you know, and I think we're coming back around to the idea that this is extremely, extremely important, especially when it comes to healthcare um, and it comes to cost that we. Um, can no longer simply focus on the clinical aspects of caring for somebody, but really have to look at the psychological aspects as well and what it takes to motivate someone and provide them the support they need to actually go through that process because I, I think that people can't do this alone, I think is what, what Kara is really saying. What is meant by health literacy? Uh, health literacy, uh, from my perspective, um, you know, what that looks like is, is a general knowledge of how the healthcare system works. Um, you know, I think there might be some different uh, perspectives out there, but it's, you know, for instance, uh, how does health insurance work? What is a deductible? What is a copay? Um, you know, what is a max out of pocket? Um, what's an authorization? What What is required of me? What do I need to know to be able to successfully navigate the healthcare system, uh, to be able to attain the services and the resources I need? And um, I think that's that is a challenge for an awful lot of folks because, again, our healthcare system. I don't think is set up very well to be able to help people uh, navigate the system easily. Um, you know, for instance, and I'm going to get very basic here, is somebody may not know what a cardiologist is. Right. You know, they go to a primary care physician and they say, I'm going to refer you to a cardiologist. What is that? Why am I going? As Kara said before, why am I doing that? Um, and I don't think we do a good enough job of, of explaining the, that system and uh, those nuances very well at a very basic level to folks. And how, what do you think that we could do to mitigate some of that is it would it be classes for people how can we how can we help with health literacy Kara the way I see health literacy showing up is 
just people's inability to actually obtain and process and understand the information, too, that is actually being given to them, whether it be in the physician's office or speaking with a dietitian such as myself, um, their ability to actually understand and then apply that because we talked about the importance of having shared decision-making and getting them engaged in the process and having it be a collaborative approach, but it really can't be unless they are able to understand what it is that's being discussed and actually be able to apply that to decision-making too because we discussed the importance of being able to make decisions, but in order to make decisions, you have to have information and you have to understand that information and all of the different options that are available to you. So if you both had a crystal ball and you also had enough money to do it, how would you combat this? What kind of program would you put together? Um, well, a few things. Uh, one is I would give, uh, to be honest, I'd give providers, primary care providers specifically, more time with their patients. Yeah. Um, I think that's yeah. a big issue for us is that we have a lot of really well-trained um, primary care physicians that really know what they're doing, and but it's hard to do that in the span of, again, 10 or 15 minutes with somebody. That's a big issue. Um, is I would also provide those primary care physicians with uh, a more robust support system. And what I mean by that is when the person walks out the door of the primary care physician, are there organizations, are there entities, um, are there folks who can, again, help reinforce and support the ideas of behavior change, of health literacy? And we see that more and more. And, and I think, you know, maybe this resonates is, is a lot of folks call it care coordination, you know, can we build a system where, um, you know, everybody uh, through an insurance company, you know, through community-based organizations, whatever the dynamic is, whatever the structure is, is providing someone that they can go to that can help explain these things to them, help reinforce um, uh, the ideas that are being talked about with the primary care physician or the dietitian, and again, take their hand and walk them through that system, you know, to uh, help reinforce some of these concepts. So, Kara, let's go back to um, a little bit about changing habits. Mm -hmm. And what you've said is you start small. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is stacking those habits? What does that mean? So stacking your habits is basically identifying something that you are already doing and then tacking on another habit on top of that. Because the thing about habits is you want them to become automatic responses. So in order to actually have a habit, you have to have some type of cue, whether it be environmental or some type of internal timing cue, something like that, that triggers your response, and then that triggers your automatic action. And then usually there also has to be some type of reward associated with that too. So Let's talk about rewards. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, so rewards are really important for positive reinforcement too because you're never going to stick with an um, action if you aren't seeing any type of benefit from it too, or you aren't getting something in return. So when we do an action that is um, elicits a positive response in our brain, it actually releases certain types of um, neurological responses that um, trigger us to feel more positive and more happy. And that's going to make us want to do those actions in the future again. So tying those into uh, whatever types of habits we're trying to build is extremely important too. And I think people see the importance of rewards, but oftentimes they go about it wrong in that they um, set a large goal for themselves and then have a reward built in at the end of achieving that large goal. But again, when it comes to stacking those behaviors, we need to have those smaller rewards along the way too 
to help um, continue them through that process and help reinforce uh, those behaviors. And isn't it uh, not getting into also the absolutes? I can never, mm-hmm. I can never have a piece of chocolate cake again. But I'm not going to have a piece of chocolate cake today, and it doesn't mean that I can't have a piece of chocolate cake somewhere down the road. Absolutely. It's all about moderation and balance because I don't think it's actually healthy to never have any type of sweet again or something like that because what we see when we restrict is the longer we restrict, it's basically like a pendulum that you restrict, 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 and then eventually you're, you can't live in a bubble for the rest of your life. So you're going to encounter that thing that you've been restricting. And at that point, eventually you're going to binge. Right. And then, and then you're going to eat the whole cake yeah, instead of one slice. Yep. And then the pendulum swings to the other end. And at that point, usually people either A, give up entirely and say, that, um, you know, why even bother? I already ate half the cake, so I might as well eat the whole cake. (laughs) Or they swing back to that other end of the pendulum where the next day then they go back to restricting because they feel so guilty about binging that then they go back and restrict. And then the cycle continues. The cycle continues, which is really is kind of the hamster on the wheel. And part is for us to identify where we do the hamster on the wheel. Um, Trevor, let's talk a little bit about the classes that we offer at Access and what's available for someone and the particulars of it, if you don't mind. Sure. So uh, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about so far and what what Kara just alluded to is really built into a lot of the health education classes and services that we have available at Access to Healthcare Network. Um, So we've been providing health education for about eight years now. And what that's composed of, uh, a couple different things. One is what's called diabetes self-management education. And again, uh, these classes are non-clinical. They're not taught by um, you know, registered nurses or primary care physicians. Uh, they're taught by registered dietitians and folks who have a really good understanding of what it takes to actually uh, do behavior change, right? And so, for instance, this class, it's, it's once a week uh, for six weeks for about two to three hours. And it goes over, again, those basic life skills about decision-making, setting goals for yourself, and helping you to figure out you know, what's going to motivate you to not just create short-term change, but also stick with it for long-term change. Um, embedded in these are also cooking classes because, you know, again, information is powerful, but hands-on learning we think is even more powerful. So we talk about uh, healthy nutrition, you know, healthy diets, but also then give you some experience in actually how to create that for yourself, make that for yourself. Um, but I think one of the most powerful parts of, of that diabetes self-management class um, is it gives you a support system because you do it in a group setting. It's not one-on-one, it's not individual, but it's in a group setting of individuals like you who have diabetes, um, who have experienced the same challenges, the same problems you have. And you can start trading ideas of what did you do? How did you overcome this problem, right? But also just to realize that you're not alone, right? That you're, you are uh, you are the same as everybody else is, right? And that I think that's a very powerful force. And when you walk out of this class again and, um, you know, you're done with, with our, our leaders, you still have the support system that you can call, you can contact and rely upon. So that same idea is we also have uh, what's called chronic disease self-management programs. It's the same idea as the diabetes, but it's for anybody who has, uh, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, breathing problems, you know, who is dealing with pain, uh, dealing with osteoarthritis, you know, whatever uh, chronic disease someone has, this class is built to be able to help you, again, find the tools to better manage that disease. In addition, um, we have cooking classes uh, that are taught by Kara and her team. Um, and again, this is for folks who want to dive a bit deeper into, maybe uh, need to dive a, a bit deeper into, 
not just what a healthy diet looks like, um, but also how do I prepare it, right? Um, because I remember, um, you know, not too long ago that uh, Brussels sprouts was one of the worst things I could think of of ever eating. But I didn't realize, to be honest, until I met Karen and her team, that you can roast roast uh, Brussels sprouts, and they're absolutely delicious, and they're healthy for me. So it's giving people hands-on skills to, to make that recognition, to make that change. And then last but not least is uh, nutritional counseling. And this is actually one-on-one -on -one visits with uh, someone like Kara or uh, someone on her team to really dive into uh, what this looks like for you as an individual and your family. And where would someone call if they wanted more information? Kara, what was that number again? They would also call the Health Education Department at area code 775-284-1898. And Kara, um, let's end on a, a note of what you have found in your team so rewarding with doing these classes with people and the cooking classes and the diabetes classes and the chronic disease? What's, what's been the most rewarding thing for you? Oh, gosh, where to even begin? Um, I think, like you mentioned earlier, that when they come through our door, they're already motivated. So that's great, but just they are so confused and they don't know where to start. And being able to help walk them through that journey and kind of see them go from very overwhelmed and confused to really empowered and um, self-sufficient is really rewarding. And Trevor, what about you? I know you've put these classes together for years and the department has been your creation. What have you found so rewarding? Uh, the same thing, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I could look at you know, making big, broad changes in the community and uh, being able to increase overall health of, you know, um, our community. But to me, it really comes down to the individual. It's it's hearing the stories of the people whose lives we've changed, uh, you know, dramatically. And, you know, one that always uh, really struck a chord with me was, um, this was probably five or six years ago, but it it still stays in my mind was we had a, an, an elderly woman who was about 67, 68 years old uh, come to us who was diagnosed with diabetes and her physician, you know, very bluntly told her and said, if you don't make a change uh, soon, um, you know, you might you lose the, the use of your legs. And, you know, through building a relationship with her um, and going through these classes, you know, we, we came to understand why she wanted to make this change. And it was about her grandchildren um, and that she took care of two beautiful grandbabies and that her biggest fear in the world was that if she didn't make a change, um, she wouldn't be able to take care of those grandkids. But also losing what brought her one of the biggest joys in the world, which was to walk her grandbabies up the stairs every night to tuck them into bed. And uh, we saw her uh, go through these changes and blossom um, and be able to um, um, stay where she needed to be able to take care of those kids. And that, to me, um, drives me every day, is knowing that um, we made a difference in her life and the life of her grandkids so she can keep doing that. Well, those are um, great testimonials to how people change, uh, what encourages and motivates them to change. But also, I want to thank you both for the work that you do, because so many people have literally uh, found a new life uh, because of what you both do. So thank you very much. We have been talking today about the high cost of chronic disease. We've been talking to Kara Hockrader, who's a registered dietitian at Access to Healthcare, and Trevor Rice, he's the Chief Operating Officer at Access to Healthcare. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcasts.